Good morning. Good to see you. Would you please get out your uh, programs and go back to that Philippians passage? You know, I really got into it this week. I really went down into this thing, and I don't know if I've come back up again, so I'm going to have to drag you down with me. Uh, you might also want to grab a pen, because I'm going to have to, if you have one handy, if not, it's okay, it won't be a test, but uh, I may have you write in something here as we begin. So, you know, there are some passages in Scripture, although all Scripture is inspired and profitable teaching, there's some that are just bottom-line passages, where uh, the language and the images so succinctly and powerfully and foundationally grab the essence of Jesus, the Father, or the Holy Spirit, that um, they deserve to be returned to regularly. And this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, we're starting today in 5, but of course Todd, Todd number 1 last week began this passage. This is one of them. This is one of those passages. And in fact, most scholars think this, is a, this was a hymn, this bit, in 2, 5 and following. That this is something that would be sung in the liturgy somewhere and therefore returned to. And of course, it's a hymn about Jesus. It's a hymn about how he revealed God. Is that still up there? Yeah. And how in his person he displayed who God is. Now, on the one hand, this stretch from in chapter 2 is a message that is so plain, so clear, that it kind of teaches itself. And if we call last week's beginning, maybe starting at verse 3, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing to solely for your own sake, to secure yourself in the world, out of an empty kind of exaltation of self. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have this mindset that was in Christ Jesus. That's how our passage begins with that last line. But on the one hand, this is, I mean, we could just read that and stop and have you think about it for 30 minutes. That might be appropriate. But no, they've asked me to speak. So it is true, though, on the other hand, this passage here does have some complexity to it. That at the heart of it is this claim about Jesus. And it's crucial for us to understand what this story is. Because in fact, in verses 11 to Sorry, in verses 6 to 11 or 5 to 11, it is a kind of short story of Jesus coming, living, dying, rising, and being reunited completely with his Father in heaven, being exalted so that every tongue will acknowledge that he is Lord. Many see in this story what Henry Nouwen has famously called the downward mobility of Jesus. You and I, all of our lives, I suspect, have been encouraged for upward mobility, to gain success, to gain power, to establish strong networks with the right people, to distance ourselves from perhaps weakness or limit. And of course, there is a proper kind of flourishing in our skills, in our professions, in our vocations. But Jesus, of course, in becoming human, in limiting himself in certain ways, in becoming a servant, and even being obedient to the point of death, was following a journey of downward mobility in his life here. We might call it, as it's called here in our John 13 passage, the way of servanthood. Jesus himself kind of contrasts the upward and downward mobility elsewhere when he says, you know that among the Gentiles, the rulers lord it over them. The way of the world is to lord it over other people, and great men make their authority felt. 
he says. Among you, this is not to happen. No, anyone who wants to become great among you must be your servant, and anyone who wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, we see this illustrated in the John 13 passage today, the washing of his feet. So, so where's the confusion here? Where is maybe the complexity um, that some scholars have debated? Well, you know what? It comes in that clause in verse 8. And so here's where I want you to take your pen. Actually, back in verse 6 here. It says, who being in very nature God. I want you to scratch out being, who being in very nature God. And I want you to write the word although. Or you don't even have to scratch out the word being. But kind of carrot stick, who although being in the very nature God. And I say that because in many translations, that is what is there. I grew up in the New American Standard Bible. How many of you, NASB, if you were raised? Yeah, there's... Three. Okay, I'm older than many of you, I see. It has fallen out of favor a little bit, I think. Um, but currently, the largest selling Bible, at least last year, was the English Standard Version. How many of you ESVers? Any of you? Yeah? Three more? Do you guys read the Bible? Are you? No. <laughs> I think you read it on your phones and you really don't know what translation it is. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut you that kind of slack, is what I'm going to say. So that's cool. No judgment. A little judgment. Um, well, anyway, in those translations, you frequently see inserted the word, although being in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that is, in fact, the translation I grew up with. So what does this mean, although being in the form of God or in very nature God here? The actual word is in the form, morphe, of God. What does that mean that Jesus was in the form of God? This is the sticking point for many. Well, in some ways it's not that there's a simple way to talk about it, and one would be that Jesus was in fact God, although being in very nature God, although, although being in the form of God, and that of course is true. He was in fact God. And as a part of being God, he had a powerful and glorious form. That would be a part of the way he could manifest himself, a powerful and glorious form that could be displayed. So one way to even get a little more precise is that he was in the form of God. And one school of thought, and I, and, I, and I think this is right, is that first century readers would have thought, well, you know, he had a, a, as God, he had a particular form that could be very powerfully displayed. This is, this is Christ in the heavenlies. This is Christ at the second coming. This is the Christ around whom in Revelations multitudes would gather and say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb of God. That he was in very nature God, and he had this form kind of latent in him. At any moment, he could have appeared this way. He could have made, in the passage that I quoted earlier from him, he could have made his authority felt. And of course, he does in part in the Gospels. People hear him speak and go, oh my gosh, this person speaks with authority. But he could have really, being in the form of God, really just blown people away with the glory and power of his form. The problem with the although word, although he was in the form of God, he emptied himself, he became nothing. The problem with that translation that are in many scriptures, scripture translation, is it makes it seems that in coming to earth and becoming a servant, he was acting unlike God. Do you hear that? Although he was in the form of God, he did this instead. That his godlikeness would really be displayed in power and glory. But although he did that, he kind of emptied that and he did something ungodlike by becoming human 
and becoming a servant. That he laid aside his glory to become something different than a god. You know, it's kind of like um, last Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving before Thanksgiving. This is a whole other story, but I had Thanksgiving with Adele. That happened in my life. (laughs) So, now Adele has a certain power and glory. When she is on the stage, when she is singing, when the lights are on her, she's attractive, she has a great voice. That is glory. (laughs) And it's a glory proper to her. It's a glory that she is in the form of that at that moment. That is in her. When I saw her, she was in the pool (laughs) with her kids, splashing around in her bathing suit. Most of us, when we're in our bathing suits, we are not in the form of our glory. She was not in the form of her glory. (laughs) Her hair was wet. and So she had this two things that were her. And she's a very nice person, by the way. Certain glory in that. Certain goodness in that. So the question is, which one is the real Adele? Well, they both were. They both were. So Jesus had the form of God. And of course, this is what first century readers would have thought. They would have thought, when that was mentioned, of this idea that, wow, he was God in this big, powerful sense, as Paul talks about. And they would have thought that too, because this would be a phrase, and the ongoing phrases of being equal to God, that would be a phrase actually current in Roman theology of the emperor. The emperor was, was, was said to be equal to God, in the form of God. And so when they heard that, they would have heard the little Roman theology in the background. They go, I get it. He was in the form. He had the power and the glory because they would have heard that as the way Roman emperors convey their authority. To distance themselves from people, to make their authority felt, and of course to have all the trappings of glory among the people. But what if... Being God is both that, the form of God in his power and glory manifested as Christ in the heavenlies at the right hand of the Father. But what if what it also means to be God is to be the self-giving God, the servant, that both, in fact, are manifestations of who God is. It's not like you lay aside who God is and become something else for a while until you become God again in heaven. But what if, in fact, the form of God is both? So here, it is true. Although he was in the form of God, he did this. But you know, there is no word although there. We have to supply it. And what if it's possible that the other word that could be supplied there is because he was in the form of God? (laughs) He became a servant. Both are true. Are you tracking with me? Because God is self-giving, not just manifest in the glory and power, but because he is manifest in self-giving for servant of another's, it is true. Although he was in the form of God, that's a plausible translation he laid aside, but also because the form of God is self-giving, he came as a servant. That also is who God is. That also is what Jesus reveals about God. That at God's very root, he is self-giving. You know, this makes sense. Because you remember that temptation, I think it's the third in Matthew and the second in Luke or the other way around, in which Satan takes Jesus to the top of a mountain and says, you know what, if you worship me, I can just give you all of this. Now you have to ask yourself, why would that have been tempting to Jesus? Because Jesus probably knew at this point he was going to get all of this anyway, right? 
According to this passage in Philippians 2, he was going to be exalted. And every tongue would bow down and say, you are Lord. And he was going to get this anyway. So what was the temptation here? Why would this have been a powerful temptation to have Satan say, I'm going to give you this? Jesus could say, well, I'm going to get it all anyway. So no problem. Well, you know, the temptation would be Jesus would not have to deal with being a servant. He would not have to deal with the vulnerability. He would not have to deal with the temptations of being misunderstood. He would not have to empty oneself at certain times of a power to which he could exploit for his own advantage. He would have to become poor in spirit. He would have to show us who God is. And so in a sense, the temptation that Satan's offering him is, you know, you don't have to show that side of God, <laughs> that self-giving side. Let's just go right to the glory. And Jesus Im implicitly says, I'm not going to do that, not just because you're triggering this and you're unreliable, but because I need to show them that this is God too. The way of the servant is looking at God. So that's a lot of close study. The point in Epiphany is that Jesus didn't just come to die on the cross and be raised. If so, then God would have just had Herod kill him as a baby. He had to come and live as well. And to show us what the way of servanthood is. So what, what is for us in this? Because here we are commanded to have the mindset of Jesus. Well, I want to say this. We, all of us, have a certain glory that is part of our form. And that is good. Right? Glory is simply goodness or skill or achievement displayed. That's what glory is. Goodness or accomplishment or achievement displayed. So all of you, for instance, probably have certain skills. You might have skills of articulation or talking. So that when you talk, people go, wow, that, that's good. And you know, that's right. That's a certain glory because it's a certain goodness that it's okay to say, that's, that's cool. Some of you may have skills of athleticism. Today, you'll see skills of athleticism if you're on channels four or seven, I think, today, or four or eleven. And it's okay to say, wow, that's cool. That is actually noticing goodness on display and saying there's a certain glory that is appropriate to that. Some of you have skills of music. Some of you have skills of analytics. You can study and measure things and problem solve. Administration, entrepreneurship, the healing arts, therapy, the instructional arts, teaching. Some of you have glory of appearances. In our culture, in the ideals of beauty at this time, your appearance um, may be very attractive. And there's a certain glory to that. You may have the glory of possessions or of connections or the glory of achievements. So there's a certain glory, there's a certain number of things that deserve a certain amount of glory. A well-made table deserves a certain amount of glory. They are good. The problem becomes when we take our glory, the form of our glory, the form of our power... And we exploit it to our own ends. That is the problem. When does this happen? Well, you know, we all have a basic anxiety. An anxiety that is basic to being human. We know we're small. We know we can't control all things. We know that people can take advantage of us. We know life is fragile. We feel our shame sometimes, our guilt. We feel a certain emptiness. And so our whole lives, we set about looking for identity, security, significance, and power. That is almost what it means to be human. 
we recognize that we have a basic weakness. And you know, Jesus, no doubt, in entering the human form, felt a basic anxiety. You know, he was not just playing a part here. He was all in, which means he himself had to feel a basic anxiety. And of course, we see this most prominently in the garden before his crucifixion. The anxiety and with it the temptation to secure myself in the world above all others. And so for you and me, this often is how it comes up. Your skills, your goodness, your achievements have a certain glory that should be celebrated. But there will be moments when, in daily life, the basic anxiety rises. Someone challenges your authority. Someone is competing with you, maybe to your disadvantage. Someone you have a conflict with says something, and you can feel the anxiety rise, and you can feel the desire to defend yourself. And I will say right now that sometimes it is appropriate to defend oneself not only for self, but for the sake of others. But we can feel this coming, and it is at this point that we need to just stop. (laughs) Feeling the basic anxiety rise, we need to stop, we need to notice it, and we need to think, how am I tempted to act in this situation? How am I tempted to exploit my modicum of power, my skills, my strengths, How am I attempted to use these good things in ways that are solely for my advantage? And Lord, like Jesus did, do I need to temporarily empty myself of that desire? Temporarily empty myself of those skills and achievements and power. Those are good things. But in this moment, when it comes to me and this other person, is there a way I need to serve them? And so need to empty myself temporarily of a form that is really mine to become the form that is the self-giving God that is really God too. So the simple test, when basic anxiety arises and when you're tempted to use your glory in whatever form to overcome the situation, you just simply want to ask, Lord, is there a way now that I can serve others rather than just secure myself in the world? That is the simple question. Todd gave us some great applications last week of the command to consider others at various moments more important than yourself. One is, he said, hold your tongues. So for those of us whose skill is articulation or we're witty or we're sharp or we always win arguments, we may stop and go, I can win this argument. (laughs) I can be really sharp and sarcastic here. I can really nail this and this person will just shrink. We will stop and go, is that what I'm to do right now? Because I have that form of glory in me. I have those skills of speech and articulation that in many instances are good. But Lord, do I need to hold my tongue now as a way of serving the other person? By the way, this goes for social media posting. What is social media but constant 24-hour displays of glory? We're here in Hawaii. You're in your cubicle. (laughs) Being in Hawaii is glorious. And it deserves a certain amount of glory. But my power to be in Hawaii and my power to post it may not be serving others well. Should I post this, Lord? Todd last week said, another thing we could do to consider others better than ourselves is to listen long and patiently. Some of you, your glory is doing and problem solving. And you're good at that. And we are so grateful. But sometimes what's needed is for us to lay aside our ability to do and problem solve. There will come a time for that. And rather than just saying, I'm going to fix you, to say, serving right now is good to listen to you. I lay aside my glory temporarily for another glory, 
which is the glory of the appearance of servanthood, the actual manifestation of servanthood. Todd said last week, another way we serve others is to forgive them. For some of you, your glory is doing the right thing. It is justice. And you are a disciplined person. And you work hard at doing the right thing. And you do the right thing in many cases. And so what your glory, your temptation of your glory will be, why didn't you do the right thing? Well, there may become a time where you help that person understand what the right thing to do is, should the occasion come up again. But you may have to lay aside your glory and goodness and power in that case and just forgive them. So I don't know what the application for you to be. But what I want you to do in just the minute that follows here is I want you to grab whatever image you have of the earthly Jesus. And I want you to recognize that his servanthood, his coming to earth as a human, his even being at the point of death, that in that form you are beholding God. This is God. The self-giving God as much as the manifestation of power and glory. For a moment, sit with this Jesus who is God.